Well, good morning. They leave me to tell you to stop being great community. I love that. Let's make that guy do it. Make that guy be the bad dude. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, it's so good to be with you. It's so good to be here. Uh, I, I just, I love when we're singing and we're celebrating and we're thinking about the, the commonality that we have. You know, if you look around the room, you realize real quickly we come from different backgrounds, different stages of life. I imagine we could share for hours different stories, but what brings us together is this love and affinity for Jesus. And it's so real, and you can't make that up. You just can't. So grateful to be here. Well, as you know, we have been uh, in what we call the story um, starting almost about a year ago, I want to say. We, we began looking at Genesis and going through the scriptures and, and just pausing as a community to say, we want to understand the narrative. We want to get back to that narrative, the, the, the story of God, because the story of God and, and God's people is really their story, is our story. And, and as that is, is a part of our story, it informs us of who we are today and where we'll be one day later. And so it's been, it's been rich. And, and part of that narrative has been we've looked at uh, the idea in Genesis that we were made in God's very likeness. And that, that we resemble him in that relational, in that really relational, personal way. But in the narrative, in the story, God raises up people out of a broken state to also exemplify what it looks like to be relational with one another under God while worshiping God. And that has, it takes its own narrative. And out of that, you always see this reoccurring theme that God's people go, go they'll go through seasons of, of dryness or pain and difficulty. And, and part of that is that you can see the testing of and perseverance of a, of a group of people. There's been billions of dollars spent on organizational science and just that study alone. But we all know that the moment you flex your muscles that you didn't know you had or hadn't used for a while, you realize you're stronger than you think you are. And so God's evolution process, the transformation of God's people has always been, let's lead them through difficult waters. But in doing so, there's always been this reality of, of a leader or leaders, a group of people uh, who help guide that process. And, and, and the character that always arises in scripture is that of a shepherd, Right, a shepherd. And I want to throw this uh, on the uh, screen here. Uh, this is what we typically think of when you, when you get to the certain parts of uh, the Old Testament. Moses was a uh, shepherd. Uh, David tended sheep. Uh, you get through the, the, the prophets and the Psalms, and you see this, this rod and the staff and this, this rich language of a shepherd. But this is, these are kind of a shepherd's tools. The, the shorter one here on, on the right side here would be really truly the rod. That, that was very disciplinary oriented, but was also really protected. The, the, the staff is the long one with looks like a hook on the end or what they call a crook. And that's kind of like guiding sheep that need to be led somewhere. You're kind of veering, let's get you back to where you need to be. But what's interesting is that ancient cultures, including like the Egyptians and pharaohs, they, they also use these as symbols. When you look at some of, the, some of the pictures of those who led in ancient cultures, they actually use these same things to, to uh, declare and describe their power. 
and their might. So this picture of a shepherd has been shared in a very agricultural and ag-centric, if you will, society. And then you get into the New Testament, and Jesus comes onto the scene, and there are, of course, shepherds there. And we'll celebrate the birth of Jesus, if you can believe this, in a couple more weeks. I mean, it's just nuts, right? I can't believe it's almost Christmas, that kind of thing. But, but, but he also talks about the fact that he, he, he lays down his life for his sheep. And that my sheep know my voice. He uses stories and parables about a lost sheep and how that owner will go to the ends of the earth to save that one sheep. There's this picture of a, of a shepherding kind of leader that comes and, and guides people. And so while we've been in 1 Peter, Peter writes a letter to a group of Christians who are assembling. They've given their life to Christ. They, they've bought in, and they're following faithfully, but they're also going through a difficult time. They're going through their own persecution, their own suffering, their own pain. They're flexing their their muscles to understand their faith. And Peter, as he begins to end his letter to these groups of Christians who are struggling in an area, what we know as today is modern-day Turkey, they're, they're going to hear Peter talk about the kind of leader who is a shepherd. And that will be rich for Peter, who spent lots of time with Jesus, who has also understood the Old Testament and the Scriptures and would have said, oh, this... This is what leadership looks like in a movement that is in some ways unpopular because it includes the marginalized and unpopular because it's saying everyone has a space and place of movement that's allowing people to find dignity and value. They're going to be persecuted for their faith. So we need a leader in a time of crisis to be like a shepherd. So we're going to look at that today. What, is, what does a leader look like? In, in times of crisis, and, and how does that happen? What's the catalyst for that? But at the end of it, it will be all very quite inclusive because there will be these powerful words that every human being, no matter who you are or where you come from, these words that we land on at the end will be probably the most powerful words an effective leader can ever deliver on. So if you have a Bible, turn to First Peter chapter 5. If not, go ahead and read it on the screen with me or follow along. Verse 1 picks up this way. Peter says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Now, Peter was an apostle, and the reason why I love it, and I pause here for a second, is he doesn't use that title. An apostle was one who was sent by God, uh, spent time with Jesus, sent by Jesus, and so he could have used that as to kind of say, hey, I'm, I'm upping you on this. You've got to do what I say, but he actually just says, hey, I'm, I'm just one of you. I'm a volunteer, I'm a lay leader, I'm, I'm an elder, I'm, I'm a person who's just leading and trying to figure this out for a community, a, a body of people that are under our, under our domain and under God and all of that. We're just, I'm just one of you, and I love that, because haven't you ever been in a room where first thing someone says is they just, they just throw their badges and their titles out there? Don't you just want to run out of that room real fast? Doesn't that just, it just sucks the air out of the room really quickly, doesn't it? Well, I love how Peter starts to talk about this, just kind of this, this like, we're just, we're just equals here, trying to figure this out together. So this is a really, everyone is included in, that, in this idea of being a leader. This isn't about 
who's got what title or who's got what position. This applies to everybody, and Peter sets that up really well. And then he goes into this rich language of being a shepherd. Verse 2 says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Right? That, that first part, and we'll stay here for a little while, but verse 2 says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Right? Great, effective leaders, especially in moments of crisis, are, are, are people who care. They think about the welfare of, a, of another human being. They think about how, how they're, they're faring. It's the idea that people come first. It's the understanding that every organization or business decision is actually a human decision. You remember that phrase, if you grew up in the church, you probably heard this, or you've seen some, some, somewhere along the lines of, of, here's the church, here's the steeple, right? You know how it goes. Open the doors, I can't do it, I can't do it. Here are the people. I just, you know, I'm not good at that stuff, but, but you know the phrase, right? It's the idea that the paint on the walls of mosaic don't define the healthiness of what's going on inside the church. Right? It's that idea that people and the core of who we are matter more than the spaces we occupy, whether that on a Sunday or in a neighborhood or in a building outside of these four walls. That the infrastructure and the, and the brick and mortar don't define us. Now, please don't misunderstand. I think it is important, but they don't define what a people are. And caring leaders know that. But what's so interesting about this word care um, is it comes from this Greek word poimino. The word care is, in the Greek is, is poimino. And, and Peter uses this word. It's very integral to Peter's life. When you heard this word, you understood it meant a shepherd. I mean, everybody just understood. It was a used associated with shepherds. But it's so dear to Peter because everyone knows Peter's story. Well, and if you don't, let me explain it to you. Peter's the one who just goes after Jesus. He's, he's so enthusiastic. Right? You know, he's just jumps onto the water, thinks he can walk on water. He's like, I'm sinking. You know, that whole story. That's Peter. You're the Messiah. I, you, no one can take you, ever. I'll go to the ends. I'll fight for you. And Jesus is like, dude, just get away from me. I got to go do this, right? I, I, I'll go to the ends of the earth. I'll do whatever you need. And Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me at the end of all this. If you even knew me. And he does. In Jesus' moment of great need, Peter publicly tells everyone and denies that he ever, ever knew Jesus or had any association with him, leaving him on a cross. And then he resurrects, right? Jesus resurrects. And I don't know what that moment was like for Peter, but to look at Peter and just ask this question after he said, let's go eat some breakfast. They had breakfast first. And then, and then he looks at him. I mean, I love this. This is great. This is great leadership. He looks at Peter and says what? Do you love me? Peter says, and I don't know what that game, uh, that, that shame and guilt and embarrassment must have felt like, but I'm, I'm certain it was pretty high. And Jesus 
he says to Jesus, yes, I do. And then Jesus says, what? Then go and feed, tend to my sheep. Go and pimo, pimone, poimino. I had to look at it. I'm rusty. Poimino. Go, go tend to my sheep. Go care. And suddenly the shepherd doesn't look like someone with a whip. It looks like someone who absolutely does discipline, but with grace. And he reinstates, and suddenly the movement of the church begins. That's what caring looks like as a leader. It's not leaving people behind, but pushing them forward ahead. Naturally, you say, well, how do we do this? Well, if you're like me, you Google everything. So I Google leadership, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's so many books on leadership. It's overwhelming. But it does tell me that there's a need for it then. But Peter's so wise, he doesn't actually go into, here are the 10 marks and 10 steps of leadership. He actually goes to what we call the motivations of a leader. Motivations. The things that well up within you, the things that cause you to be who and do what you do. The motivations are far more important when you think about leadership because your motivations will typically define how and what you do. And so let me go back to verse 2 for a second. It says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. And here he goes into the motivations. Serving as overseers, not because, it's a clausal phrase, here's the why, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not greedy. There isn't some selfish gain in this, some financial well-being out of all this, but eager to serve, not lording it over. You don't need a platform or some kind of power trip, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. See, the motivation has to be this willingness to serve others, right? that eagerness to serve. And he says it with this, what we call an equative verb. He says, be shepherds. He says, as God wants you to be. This is who we are. This is our why. This is the purpose that, that we serve. It's that idea that what, what, what we say as a servant is, is, is a visionary kind of leader. It's saying, hey, you see yourself as broken, but we see you as this because Christ sees you as this. And servant leaders say, well, look, we just need to see what you need and stand in that gap. And help you get from here to there. That is the motivation. A community, a group, a a city, whatever it may be, is saying, okay, we're so broken. A servant who wants to see other people thrive because they, they have this vision of what it looks like to be healthy and right and good and and robust is saying, okay, well, what we need to do is I need to serve here to get people there or people there. And that's not something you do. It's something you, you are. It's, it's who, who we're called to be. It's kind of like a teacher said to me recently, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm retiring after 40 years of education. And I said, well, oh, well that's, a fan, that's, that's sad for us, but great for you. So what are you going to do in your retirement? She says, well, I'm, I'm going to teach. I was like, what? What are you talking about? This is, you know, John, it's not like I'm a teacher and it's like I check the box, you know, oh, for me. It's, it's, it's not something I have to do. It's something I am. It's who I am. I'm a teacher. 
I'll likely teach uh, English as a second language to, to the immigrants down in my community center. I'm planning to go overseas. I don't have a, any, any mission to teach over there, but I, I likely will teach somewhere. I'll probably substitute teach because my titles don't define who I am. Because what I am is a teacher. What makes someone a leader is not the title leader, but that they are servants is what defines a leader. And so great leaders are motivated, captivated by who they are. They're the kind of caring leaders that are motivated by a willingness to, to serve. And here's the complexity of this, is that every human being has an ego. And the minute you couple ego with any sense of authority or platform, your motivations, while they may be very pure and right, intentions good, are easily corrupt. They're corruptible. And then you add the layer of these performance indexes that the world and our Western culture says defines a great leader. And now the person who's leading any of us in any kind of capacity is suddenly forced to, like, well, I'm only a good leader if there are a lot of people on Sundays or, or there are a lot of people coming to faith or, if the, or the, if the budget is balanced. Or, and suddenly you've got this really big, complex problem where once it was just, I just want to faithfully serve. <laughs> now it's about how big can we get this thing? What spaces do we have to somehow engulf? All these things become very, very difficult for people to lead with. And it actually becomes more cowardly than courageous. You know, one of the most courageous things that Mosaic has ever done, I want to be careful here, has not been planting churches. I'm a product of the church planting process. But can I just say the most courageous thing that we have ever done at Mosaic is when we said we're going to pause and get our people right because we care about them more than the spaces we're going to fill. And part of that big process for us, this space, is to say we got to stay that course. Now, what will, what will help us not go into the places that, that become corrupt, what will help us not, not lose our motivations or, or at least in, in any sense um, keep them right? Well, I think Peter talks about it here in verse 4. He says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You see, what helps people stay true to the motivations, what helps us stay courageous about leading people is, in fact, keeping our eyes on the long-term goal. It's an eternal perspective. It's saying that our great crown, our great reward is not here in the temporal. So I don't have to worry about, do I get pats on the back? And we don't have to worry about, or do we have all these, you know, all of it is, it's, it's all wiped away. And, and the key is that this idea of a chief shepherd, right? A chief shepherd. That the outcomes are not ours. Great leaders know. Every great leader knows where manna comes from. Every great leader knows where money comes from, where success comes from. Every great leader will, will look themselves in the face and say, why am I doing this? And who am I doing this for? 
You see, great leaders, and the proof of that is that they deflect glory. They give it away. They don't take that glory. They give it away, and they give it to God. But they also don't take power. They empower people because they know that they're not leading this, and that they're just stewarding it. And they're just giving this away, and it's a constant giveaway. It's a constant deflection. It's a constant saying, this isn't about me. So that's how we stay motivated. That's how we, we, we make sure that the motivations are, are about serving people. We, we fix our eyes and make sure that we know the chief shepherd is the one doing all this great work. And we're just stewarding what God has given us to be faithful with. That's what leadership is. And this is so important because it really says to leaders and leaders in, in, in a community, look, to, for us to, to lead well, we have to follow well. We have to follow well. That's huge. And, and, and part of that is, is that it, it doesn't just mean elders or leaders of positions of title. It actually is very inclusive. Um, in verse 5, it says, to the next generation or young people in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Right? It's this idea that for, for another generation, who you decide to follow will determine how you lead one day. He assumes that you're following Jesus, but he understands the realities. You need to see that tangibly here and now. And if you're not surrounding yourselves around people who are leading, like servant leaders, the, 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 the capacity that you have later to lead well and to be compassionate with others is quite small. Quite small. So who are we surrounding ourselves with lately? To every person who's younger, I would just say this, that if you could just peel back all the accomplishments of those you, you admire, I'm not saying the accolades and the accomplishments and all those things don't matter. They, they, they tell you that, that, in fact, that they've gone the route, they've done the work, they, they know what they're talking about. But once you peel back all of that stuff, you've got to ask, how did they get there? Not just what did they get. That really matters. Don't just surround yourselves around or admire a bunch of rock stars, is what I'm trying to say. Find the character of a person who is serving, caring for leaders, and you'll lead well. So the catalyst in all this, um, now that we understand caring leaders are motivated by a willingness and an urgency to serve, the catalyst for all of this, I think, is humility. Humility. Practicing humility. Um, it says here, as you move through uh, verse 5, young men or young people in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves. Make it skin. <laughs> clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, He's inclusive, all of us. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in your due time. Humble, be humble. <laughs> Clothe yourself. It's, it's this idea that we, we um, place ourselves in other places and other people's lives. Uh, I, I like how C.S. Lewis says, he says, humility 
is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not saying that there's something wrong with you. That's called humiliation. It's saying that I don't always think about myself in certain situations, especially when it comes to leading with people in a community. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's, it's literally saying, I'm going to take care of myself, yes, right? Do that physically, emotionally, spiritually. But when the season of Jubilee is done, we get back in and we think of the other. We actually think of what others are feeling. See, humility creates what I think is um, a listener. Uh, it says, I'm here. Humility will do that. Humility will, will, will just allow us all to just, just stop talking so much, like I am right now. Just, just, just... My wife said this the other day, just, could you just stop talking? And can you just listen for a second? Just, just listen. Just, just, no, shh, shh. Okay. Listen. Humility causes us to listen first before we try to solve the world's problems. It makes us listen to God. It makes us listen to others. It makes us appreciate the other. Listening. I mean, Imagine someone on their, their, just struggling with mental health and, and you're giving a three-point sermon or a person who's lost a loved one and you want to talk about their wills or what they need to do next. I mean, no, no, just, just listen. Or maybe a friend or a coworker that's just really struggling in the home, and they don't, want, they don't want marital advice. They don't want dating advice. You know what? They just, they just want you to listen. That's what humility does. Caring leaders are motivated by, by, by that kind of person, that kind of person that is, is constantly thinking about the other and doing it through a lens of humility. But it also produces this warm sense of empathy. It doesn't just say, I'm here, but it also says, how can I help? Right, right, because you're placing yourself in someone else's shoes. You're, you're saying like Jesus weeps over a city or weeps for a relative and sees his, his friends and the family crying over someone who's, who's passed away and he can't help but weep. See, humility makes you feel what the other feels. Though you might not be able to relate to everything, you understand that that's a problem for that person. Humility makes you lament, not just because they've gone through something difficult, because maybe you were part of the problem. So, so humility makes you say, I'm sorry, forgive me. Humility eliminates envy because you're saying... I'm here to help you. It doesn't matter who gets to lead it or what the titles are. I'm just, I'm here to help. 
I yield to the staff of Mosaic, not because they have title pastors or leaders or staff. I yield to them because I want to be humble. Care for people. Be motivated through a servant's spirit and practice it with the lens of humility. The most powerful words you can say to those who are following and leading are, I'm here, how can I help? I'm here, how can I help? I was on a light max, a train going to uh, get pizza with my kids. I've been working a lot of hours, and I just say, I just, I just, you know how you just want to be, be with family, and so I just said, let's, let's go take um, some time, and let's go get pizza, but let's, let's take public transportation, because that's pretty fun. Um, but a man came on and told me I had to move. And we definitely were sitting in a disability space. Uh, I didn't see any disability, but I'm just going to take this person's word for it. So I asked my kids to stand up, because that's the right thing to do. And of course, I'm standing with my kids, because I'm not going to sit. And, and for what seemed like eternity, it was probably only just a couple of minutes, this man is now being derogatory towards me and my kids. telling me that I don't belong here, asking if I can speak English or understand it or read it. I don't know how many people but offered me their seats, but everybody was offering me a seat in that, at that moment. It was like you could just, you could cut, uh, I mean, the tension was so so high, and of course, I'm not saying much because I just don't want to say something I'm going to regret for a long time, but I'm seething mad. Finally, after what just was a constant barrage of statements to me and my kids, I just looked at him and said, sir, I speak English. I was born in this city. I love this city. I'm going to die in this city. I do what I can to help the city. Do we need to stop this train and ask the conductor to make sure your needs are met, or can we move on? He didn't say much after that, but, but he began to whisper, and I just couldn't take it anymore. And I, I took the boys and my daughter off the train as fast as I could, and I, I couldn't remember what pizza was like, honestly, because <laughs> my kids were asking about why is he making fun of our hair, and... Why does he think that? Days go by, and I, I just can't process. You know what I'm talking about? You're just so mad that something's happened like that. <clears throat> I kind of sent out an SOS, and it was a really incredible person who just said by phone, I'm available, what can I do to help you? And for 20 
probably no more than 30 minutes. I had the sudden freedom to express myself. To be angry. And then move from my anger to resolve. And then to move from resolve um, to a place to forgive. And like Peter, I felt this weird sensation of feeling like I could serve again. I'm here. How can I help? I'm going to invite the band to come forward. I'm going to leave you with really the the idea, again, that, that God really just relishes over leaders who are caring for people who, who have this urgency, this willing spirit to serve people out of a motivation of, of just seeing others thrive and that he absolutely wants to help those who are uh, doing that with humility. But two questions I want you to meditate on as we take from the table real soon. Um, who, who are you following right now? Spurgeon asked it differently. He said, what do you love right now? And who are you being called to lead? Who are you called to lead? And if you say, I, I, I'm not a leader, well, gosh, can you care? Can you, can you help a, a friend at school? Or can you help a friend? At, can you help someone here in this community? Can, can, can you care? Can you just see them as Christ sees them and then do something about it and, and, and be humble and just saying, I'm here. How can I help you? Can you do that? Then, then you can lead. And if you say, gosh, I don't know how to do that, the, the beautiful thing is Peter quotes Proverbs 3.34, and he says, he opposes the proud but gives grace. And that word grace means he, he gives help. He wants to help those who want to be humble. So you just got to ask for the help and know that he will help you lead because he's the chief shepherd, not you. And because he knows what it's like to be humble. I love that I believe in a God, the God, who doesn't ask us to do something that he's not willing to do himself. You come to the table and you are taking and represent, uh, taking from the table, you're, 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 you're declaring what he's done for you, that he... He did clothe himself with humility. He did take on the form of humanity. And he did give himself on a cross. And the, the bread and the cup represents the body and the blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. That he humbled himself so that you could thrive and live the ultimate servants. Let me read this to you. As you meditate on those questions and you find yourself ready to take from the table. It says... Um, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. 
being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.